You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. It was long awaited and highly anticipated, but a fiery debate continues about what the Mueller report actually said. On April 30th, the Washington Post sat down with Representative Adam Schiff and Representative Mark Meadows and some of the top Post journalists who have been covering the story for the last two years. Congressional Democrats are split on their political and legal options after the release of the Mueller report. In this segment, Representative Adam Schiff talks about what's next for the party. Good morning, I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter here at the Washington Post. Very happy to welcome Chairman Adam Schiff of the House Intelligence Committee. Thanks for being with us here this morning. It's a pleasure, thanks for having me. In the aftermath of the Mueller report, one of the first things you did, Chairman, is to write an op-ed for the Washington Post, and you talked about the need, despite what's in the report, to learn more about the president's finances. Last night, your efforts to subpoena records from Deutsche Bank and others was stymied by the president and his family. They filed a lawsuit to stop your efforts, to stop your inquiry. How are you going to fight back at that effort? Well, first of all, the reason that we're very concerned about the financial issues is this investigation began as a counterintelligence investigation, not as a criminal probe. The criminal probe grew out of it, uh, but it was essentially out of a concern by the FBI and a concern in our committee, which was also focused on the counterintelligence issues, um, about whether individuals around the president or the candidate himself uh, were acting as agents of a foreign power, either wittingly or unwittingly, uh, was a foreign power exercising influence. And one of the ways that Russia exercises its influence is financially. Um, probably the most graphic illustration of the danger is Moscow Trump Tower, uh, where unbeknownst to the American people and uh, this was something that the president was deceiving the country about. The president and his company were seeking to build a tower in Moscow, uh, perhaps the most lucrative deal of his life, uh, and seeking the Kremlin's help to make it happen. Uh, you can imagine how deeply compromising that could be. Um, and so we want to ferret out, we want to follow the money, and determine is there some other form of compromise. We don't yet know what the results of the counterintelligence investigation are. Uh, we are seeking that from the Justice Department and the intelligence community. What happened to that probe? Is it still ongoing? Did it come to an end? And if so, for what reason? What conclusions did they reach? Uh, so we're doing our due diligence. What about on the banks? Do you think they'll still cooperate with your committee? Uh, the banks have been cooperating, and you know they needed uh, a what we call a friendly subpoena uh, to be able to provide the records. Um, you know, they, I'm sure, are concerned about uh, the litigation that the Trump Organization has brought. Uh, but, you know, let's be plain about it. The, the president was uh, fully transparent in the sense that he says he's going to fight every effort at oversight of his administration. Um, and I think we need to recognize what's happening here. Uh, first, the president made an effort to nullify Congress's most important power, and that is the power of the purse. Uh, and did so uh, by trying to go uh, around the Congress and build a wall that Congress refused to fund. Now he is going at Congress again to try to undermine one of our other uh, most important powers and responsibilities, and that is the responsibility of oversight. Uh, and I would say to my GOP colleagues that may support him in this effort, uh, be careful what you wish for, because it will mean that subsequent Republican majorities or the Republicans in the Senate will be likewise 
unable to do their constitutional job uh, in the future. And so there is a lot riding here uh, beyond our ability to do the current investigations, and that is whether our system of checks and balances over time uh, holds up or whether we, uh, in effect, adopt an imperial presidency beyond the reach of any oversight. You said, Chairman, that banks have been, co <clears throat> excuse me, been cooperating so far. Have you learned anything so far about the president's finances? Well, you know, they've been cooperating in the sense that um, as we, you know, geared up for our majority and as we first got uh, um, uh, our committee assembled, we couldn't take action until our committee was assembled. We began the process of dialogue with some of the financial institutions to help um, identify our requests in ways that they could easily meet those requests. So they're cooperative in that way. Um, they, I think, to protect themselves, wanted to make sure that they had a subpoena. Um, but, uh, but in terms of providing the actual documents and materials, um, they're going to provide those uh, pursuant to the subpoena, and we're going to have to work our way through the litigation. You know, I will say this, uh, and not just vis-a-vis -vis the financial records from the banks, but with respect to each and every other part of our oversight, we are going to have to use whatever means we can to enforce our oversight responsibility. So if the banks get cold feet, could you compel them to testify, compel them in court to provide documents if they somehow pull back? Well, a subpoena is the mechanism. And if, uh, you know, presumably this will now be litigated and we will get a court order uh, requiring them to produce the materials. Uh, likewise, in the case of the taxes, th there is a statutory mandate uh, the statute is quite clear that says the president shall or the IRS commissioner shall provide the returns. It's not discretionary. It doesn't allow the court to try to peer into the mind of Chairman Neal and, you know, d divine uh, what his intent is. Um, so we will have to prosecute these matters in court. But I think we're also going to have to try to determine what other mechanisms do we have. Um, one of the mechanisms we have used in the Intelligence Committee in the past is we will fence funding. Uh, we will put a fence around funding and say, you shall not use funding for this purpose until you have satisfied these requests we've made. And I think Congress will have to figure out how can we use our financial power, how can we use our other powers to make sure that we get answers to these legitimate questions. Is there anything uh, specific you can do to pressure Secretary Mnuchin to release the president's tax returns to Congress? Well, there may be mechanisms other than uh, court enforcement, but I think court enforcement is um, very likely going to be necessary. Uh, and that's a case where I'm very confident we're going to win. Um, and I think the White House, uh, if they were being candid, recognizes they're on a very poor legal you think footing. We're gonna, you think the public will be able to see, or at least Congress will see the president's tax returns? I think that, that Chairman Neal will see the returns. He will then follow the appropriate process to determine um, who else is entitled to see the returns or whether they need to be shared with other committees and what the legal process for that would be. Uh, so I, I don't want to speak for him, but I'm sure that he will follow the applicable uh, rules and laws. Let's pull back to a point you made at the beginning. You raised some serious questions about possible foreign powers having leverage over presidential candidates based on your own observations of what happened in 2016. Moving forward, even though Robert Mueller, the special counsel, made a certain conclusion about conspiracy, should there be more regulation, maybe a new law that's passed, to have regulation of interactions between foreign powers and presidential candidates? Should the lines be more clear in the future? And what could Congress do to regulate that? You know, that's a great question. And we are looking at 
several different iterations of that question. In other words, after Watergate, we put in place a whole set of reforms to try to protect the country going forward. Those have now been eviscerated. Uh, one of the norms that was established post-Watergate is that a president of the United States does not interfere in specific cases at the Justice Department, let alone a case involving the president in which the president may be implicated. That obviously was completely obliterated. Uh, and there are many other protections put in place post-Watergate that have likewise been nullified. We are looking now at what will need to be done uh, to protect against the recurrence of this. I don't expect, frankly, that these are going to pass the Congress while Donald Trump is in the Oval Office. I don't think the GOP is willing to stand up to the president in that way. But could House uh, Democrats at least take some action? For example, on disclosure, if a foreign power or a foreign player contacts your campaign, what should the federal law be in terms of disclosing that to the FBI? You know, we, we are looking at those issues right now uh, in terms of what safeguards do we need to put in place? What what things that we thought were inviolate norms that turns out you can violate with impunity um, that need to be made uh, a matter of statutory requirement. Um, it's very difficult, though, I think, to uh, legislate certain ethical behaviors, um, much as it would be desirable to, to do so if we could. Uh, I don't know what the regulations would look like, for example, that would prevent someone from pursuing a business opportunity in a foreign hostile power you could make it and illegal concealing from the country you could make it illegal if you're a presidential candidate do you believe it should be legal to have a a, a business dealing with a foreign power or a foreign company well i, I mean this is the question we're going to have to analyze uh, is this something that you can prohibit via the criminal law what would that look like um, or is this a situation where um, you know, in the past, we would fully expect, number one, that the presidential candidates would be truthful about their interactions with a foreign power. We don't have uh, that expectation as reporters. Well, we, we, <laughs> we don't have that expectation anymore as Americans. But you have uh, Speaker Pelosi's blessing to at least explore these issues about campaign law moving, moving ahead? I, I think that the Speaker uh, more than recognizes the need to put into law uh, certain protections that we thought uh, were so obvious that they were, and, and so well established as norms, that we didn't need to make law. And so we are looking at those very issues right now. Uh, you know, some of them, in, you know, implicate the emoluments clause and the enforceability of the emoluments clause. Um, we are looking, frankly, and this may be among the most important issues, um, how do we uh, accelerate the use of our process? Uh, when you have a president who is stonewalling, uh, opposing all oversight, how do you accelerate so you can get a decision quickly? Um, do we need to bring back uh, inherent contempt? Do we need to bring back powers that Congress once exercised um, that we didn't think were necessary, but now uh, you know, we see with this president, a president who is, I think, unmoored by ethical considerations or, you know, uh, or respect for a system of uh, checks and balances? You mentioned something at the top. There are a lot of moving parts in the Mueller story. There's the Mueller investigation, and then you mentioned this counterintelligence investigation at the FBI about foreign inter interference in the U.S. elections. How are you going to declassify documents, get documents from that FBI counterintelligence investigation into your hands on Capitol Hill? Because at the moment, that information is not in the Mueller report, and it's not being readily made available to you. So how do you plan to actually pursue that information. I know you want it. How can you get it? Yeah. Well, we have already begun pursuing it, and, uh, and interestingly enough, 
um, given my relationship with Mr. Nunes. Uh, we are doing so on a, on a did I say that diplomatically? Um, we are doing so on a bipartisan basis. This may be the one bipartisan request of the oversight committees right now, which is Mr. Nunes and I have both demanded uh, the, the full and unredacted uh, report, the underlying evidence. We've demanded the counterintelligence findings. Um, and we're, we're going to try to bring in uh, Bob Mueller and others, uh, do as much of this in the open as we can. We will probably have to bifurcate our hearings and have some in open session. But I, you know, I think Mr. Mueller can fully explain to the country what happened to the counterintelligence investigation, uh, what, uh, what he can discuss publicly about the results of that. And then we can go into closed session for any information that would involve sources and methods. Now, the, the intelligence community and Justice Department have demonstrated in the last Congress their willingness to share hundreds of thousands of pages of discovery to a Republican Congress about a Democratic candidate for president. They're unwilling as yet to share 400 pages with a Democratic Congress uh, about a Republican president. But we are going to press forward. And they also showed a willingness in the last session of Congress to declassify information when the public uh, interest was sufficient and when it could be done so in a way that didn't compromise sources and methods. So the fact that something is classified does not mean that it cannot be declassified. It would have to be done in such a way, though, that it can protect the intelligence community equities. When are you actually going to read the unredacted version of the Mueller report? Well, he here's the thing, um, and this is why I think the Justice Department's position is so untenable. Um, they're taking the position that you cannot indict a sitting president, but we are not going to show you fully the evidence in Congress you would need to determine whether an impeachment is warranted unless you begin an impeachment without knowing. Um, that, that cannot be the position of the Department of Justice. Um, right now, they want to show certain redacted portions to certain members, myself included. Well, you know, that may be fine as far as my understanding of the situation. But in terms of the broader congressional responsibility, how, how am I supposed to advise my colleagues on issues like impeachment if they're not able to see the evidence? Uh, so I think that's completely untenable. And the fact that the attorney general um, would represent at his confirmation that he would be as transparent as law and policy will allow, and yet come before Congress and say, I'm actually not going to do that. I could go to court. I could join you and ask for the grand jury material to be made available to you, but I don't want to do that. Um, to me, that is a betrayal of what he promised to do. Uh, but of course, coupled with the misrepresentations he has made about the contents of the report, we now have great insights into Mr. Barr that we didn't have before. Um, and I have to say, I think he's doing a singular disservice to the country on the most important investigation that we've had in, in a generation. You've had an opportunity to read this report in depth and also reflect on your own interviews as chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Looking back at some of the witnesses that have come through, starting with Eric Prince, you've suggested in the past that he may have lied to your committee. After reading the report, reflecting, do you believe that Eric Prince lied to your committee? Um, I do believe that uh, there is very strong evidence that he willingly misled the committee and made false statements to the committee. And later today, we'll be making a criminal referral to the Justice Department. You're going to make a criminal referral we are going to make on a Eric Prince. Referral. You know, I think the, the evidence um, is so weighty 
that the Justice Department needs to consider this. Uh, his testimony, which I can discuss because it is public record now, um, was that his meeting in the Seychelles uh, with um, uh, this Russian banker was purely by chance. He just happened to be there and his hosts suggested, he just happened to go to the Seychelles for about a day um, and have a chance meeting with this Russian banker. Well, we know from the Mueller report now that that was not a chance meeting, that he had preparatory materials about him before he left, that he had discussions about it uh, with Mr. Bannon before he left. Uh, we know there were communications after he returned. Uh, he was also asked whether he was attempting to establish a back channel for the, for the Trump uh, uh, transition or campaign, uh, which he also denied, and it's clear from the Mueller report that that was false and misleading. So in very material ways, um, I think the evidence strongly suggests that he willingly misled our committee, uh, and the Justice Department needs to consider whether it can make a prosecutable case. Now, one of the issues I, I've, I'm sure the Justice Department is going to have to uh, determine is some of that information was provided in a proffer session, um, and whether that precludes the Justice Department from using that information will depend on the. Well, you still can't nature. lie to Congress. To regardless of the session, the type of session. Well, you can't lie to Congress, uh, you're absolutely right. But if the evidence that his testimony was false was given to the Justice Department by Prince under the condition it not be used against him, then being able to prove the case may be problematic. Um, but that's something the Justice Department will need to carefully scrutinize. And of course, the other problem is that somehow, mysteriously, magically, the communications between Mr. Prince and Mr. Bannon have apparently fled their devices. Um, and so Do you believe th Steve this Bannon is, has been candid with your committee? Well, when we, when we have the opportunity to release his transcripts, Truthful. we'll see that Mr. Bannon refused to answer almost all of our questions. Um, and when we pressed to hold him in contempt, uh, the GOP members of our committee would not go forward. Uh, they did not want to cross him to that degree. Um, and so there were whole periods of time in which Mr. Bannon refused to answer questions. And when we asked whether he was asserting some privilege, uh, he, he uh, merely said that he was not answering the questions because the White House asked him not to. Could you bring Bannon um, back? Uh, we could, we could. And you know what we, and we may, what we're doing right now is we are combing through the Mueller report to determine what areas did Mueller exhaustively examine, um, such that there's no need to reinvent the wheel? Uh, what areas did he not examine? What areas would the public benefit from the public airing of the testimony? So we're looking through those issues right now. We, we've talked about Eric Prince. It's significant you're, you're making a criminal referral about him to the Justice Department. Two other names, Jared Kushner, Donald Trump Jr. Do you believe they were truthful to your committee? I, you know, I don't want to comment on any others. We have reached the point of ripeness with Eric Prince's uh, testimony that we feel it appropriate to refer it, uh, but I don't want to comment as to others. The Post has done a lot of reporting on Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and the way he's handled the Mueller report, the, the release of the Mueller report. Do you want to summon him to testify? We do, um, and I think he has a, a deeply mixed record uh, in all of this. I think that his tenure justice will uh, um, be reflected uh, historically with a very deeply mixed review. Um, 
what is most significant to me is that he wrote the memo that was used as a pretext for the firing of James Comey and then allowed himself to be used by Bill Barr um, as part of the cover for arrogating to himself, that is Mr. Barr, the decision that the obstruction of justice case could not be made. Um, Rod Rosenstein was a witness. Rod Rosenstein was a participant um, in what led to the firing of James Comey. Uh, and he should not have had any role in adjudicating whether the obstruction case rose to the level of a prosecutable crime. Um, so that is a huge problem. That Why do you think he did that? Well, I, I honestly, I think that you can explain many courses of his conduct, including, I think, setting a very dangerous precedent at the Justice Department of referring matters for investigation that involve the president's political enemies because the president wanted him to. Um, and I think that was justified at the time, and I discussed it as this was going on. I, I think this was justified, and these are not his words, but this is my impression. Um, this was a way of relieving pressure. Um, well, it may have relieved pressure or it may have not, but what it did do was set a dangerous precedent that the top acting officer at the Justice Department can be made to investigate the, the president's enemies. So you have many questions for the, the DAG. What about Mr. Mueller? You've invited him to come before your committee. When do you summon him? When do you compel him, perhaps, to actually put his hand in the air and tell the American people his story in front of your committee, perhaps to the public? Well, we have given the Justice Department a deadline for the materials that we want to obtain. And we have also asked for his testimony, uh, Mr. Rosenstein's, Mr. Ray's, and others from the counterintelligence section. Um, they have been meeting with us to discuss the matter, the timing, the scope. Um, and so I don't want to give a hard and fast deadline in, t in terms of Mr. Mueller's testimony, but we do want him to come in soon, uh, and we are working to procure that. Um, and and do you, we, do you think the Department of Justice will fight you on that? I certainly hope not. Uh, now, a normal Justice Department would not. Um, a normal Attorney General would not. This Attorney General views himself as the President's personal lawyer, and I think he made that quite clear when he applied for the job, and I think he's made it uh, abundantly clear since then. So there is no telling what this Attorney General will do. But I, I will say this, the Department and the intelligence community know they are on particularly weak ground legally when it comes to our committee because there is a statutory requirement to keep our committee fully and currently informed of any significant counterintelligence activity. Now, they have not been doing that. They suspended doing that on the most important counterintelligence investigation uh, once Bob Mueller was appointed. Um, and they will have a lot of explaining to do why they think that appointment somehow uh, vitiated their statutory obligation, but they know they have a statutory requirement and they are currently in breach of that. Uh, so I think they understand they're in a weak legal position, um, but we, we hope to secure their cooperation. If not, we'll use whatever compulsion is necessary. You've raised some major issues and questions about President Trump for the last 20 minutes. Is Speaker Pelosi in any way holding you back from pursuing impeachment proceedings? Uh, she is not holding me back uh, in any way. Now, we certainly confer about what's the best way forward, and, uh, and in terms of the oversight, we want to make sure that we put our strongest case forward uh, 
in the courts uh, and get the right judgments. Um, so uh, we are certainly conferring not, not only with the speaker, but uh, among my colleagues uh, that are doing the oversight work to make sure that we're on the strongest legal footing. Um, What's the timeline then for impeachment, if any? Well, look, I, I think that, you know, we are all mindful of what it would mean to the country to go through an impeachment. That is not a decision to be lightly made. Um, and, you know, I started out, I think, very skeptical of the utility of impeachment um, if it was almost certain that it would fail in the Senate. Uh, and right now, um, the, the Republican leadership in the Congress is so devoted to the person of the president um, that there are no John McCain's left, there is no Howard Baker, um, there is no one who will go to the president to stand up to his unethical conduct. Uh, and that puts real limits on the viability of an impeachment. Um, and I think what is in tension right now is the idea that if he is not impeached in the House, what does that say about whether these acts of obstruction of justice and these acts of, you know, sort of, willful receipt of foreign help during a campaign. What does it say about whether that rises to the level of compatibility or incompatibility with office? But by the same token, if we prosecute an impeachment and he is acquitted in the Senate, what does that verdict say? Um, and but what about if you put those two issues from the Mueller report aside, obstruction and conspiracy questions, abuse of power questions, the president not complying with Congress, could that battle ever rise to being an impeachable offense in your eyes, the president's refusal well, to comply? I, I will tell you that if there's anything that's going to get me there, um, it's the fact that the president um, contravenes the constitutional requirement of um, oversight, compliance with oversight. Um, if he is willing to flout the law uh, in that way also, um, he is going to make an even more powerful case for an impeachment proceeding. Now, if he were a strategic thinker, I would say that's his design. Um, but he isn't. Uh, I think this is just Trump doing what he does and did as a private litigant, which is sue everyone, threaten to sue everyone, um, and take a maximalist approach on everything he does. Uh, but nonetheless, I think he is um, certainly creating a, uh, a momentum um, by his obstruction of uh, our investigation. Um, first, he obstructed Bob Mueller, and now he's obstructing Congress. Uh, and, and those acts of obstruction in the past with other presidents have been considered grounds for impeachment. Final question, we're out of time. 2020, how vulnerable is the U.S. election system to Russian interference? It's still all too vulnerable, and, and I think for the, the main reason that there is no um, whole-of-government approach led by the President of the United States to combat this problem. And, you know, I have been saying now for about a year and a half that one of the threshold issues is that if any of the members of the Cabinet raise this, the President considers it a threat to his legitimacy. Well, we have now seen that fear validated um, by... Um, reports that that's exactly the message that was given to the former Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, there are good efforts being made at the agency level, but it doesn't have the support of the president, um, not in the way that it needs to. I mean, the president should be sitting down with the cabinet and saying, Secretary of State, 
Are you conferring to your Russian counterpart that if they meddle again, the sanctions they have now are nothing compared to what they see, they will see, and um, Director of CIA, what are you seeing about Russian plans and tensions in the next election? Department of Homeland Security, what kind of cooperation are you getting from the states? Are the secretaries of state taking advantage of the diagnostics that you have available? Um, Secretary of Defense, have you mapped out what a proportionate response will be if they hack and dump again, if they continue the social media campaign? Um, all of that should be going on at the highest level. Uh, it is not being president-led, although some of that work is going on. Uh, I continue to think that our voting machines are too vulnerable, and you know, I'll leave you with this last uh, deep concern I have. In 2016, while we were watching this in the Intel Committee in real time, my profound concern as the, as the Russians were dumping these stolen documents was that they were going to start dumping forgeries among the real. Now, for the most part, we didn't see that. But there's no reason the Russians would hold back uh, from that threshold in the future. And now with the advent of new technologies like deep fakes, the Russians can inject into our political bloodstream uh, false video and false audio that is almost indistinguishable from real. And in a highly polarized electorate like we have today, if you release a video of a candidate saying something racist or misogynist or criminal, there would be almost no way to disprove its veracity in time. And even if you could disprove it, psychologists will tell you that the damage is done when you see it. Because even if your brain is persuaded that what you saw is a forgery, you will nonetheless never lose completely the negative impression of the person that you have formed. Um, this is what the future could look like um, if we're not prepared, uh, if we haven't established an adequate deterrent. Uh, and frankly, I think the message the Russians got in Helsinki uh, I think when the Russians, when Putin went back to the Kremlin to confer with his staff, his staff said to him, this week U.S. President will not confront you. He will not confront you. Uh, you, can, you can get involved as you like in the next presidential election as long as it's on his side. He will not confront you. He may even welcome it. Um, that is the message I think the Russians got in Helsinki. Uh, and I don't think there has been an adequate uh, pushback to that message since Helsinki. And, uh, and so I am, remain deeply concerned that the Russians will try to cast doubt, cast Americans to question whether they can rely on the results of our own election. Um, and the, the bigger danger than the voting machines, which in, of themselves are vulnerable, is that it's easier to influence how people vote than the votes once they're cast. Uh, and using these new disruptive technologies is a, is a grave risk. Chairman Adam Schiff, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more